0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: For some Christians, the Psalter, the 150 Psalms in God's Word, is an appendage to the New Testament. For others, it is a forgotten book. Christian young people know the words to contemporary worship songs, such as, like a sloppy wet kiss, but they do not know Psalm 23, nor have they ever sung it, but it was not always so. For most of Christian history, the Psalms were among the most influential books of the Bible. The monks chanted them daily. In the Reformation, one of the first things the Reformed churches did was to produce a psalter for God's people to use in public and private worship. Bob Godfrey is president and professor of church history at Westminster Seminary, California, and he has been studying the Psalms for a number of years, and he's just written a new and valuable introduction to the Psalms, Learning to Love the Psalms. This and other faculty titles is available through The Bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Bob. Hi, Scott. Welcome back to Office Hours. Thank you. Good to be here. First of all, before we dive into the Psalms, let's connect you to the Psalms personally. How did
2: you come to see the importance of the Psalms? Well, I think I began to get connected to the Psalms One might say almost subconsciously. When I first started attending a Reformed church back in the late 50s, when I was a high school student, the Christian Reformed church I attended in those days sang predominantly the Psalms. And so I began to learn them. I was a brand new Christian. I was relatively unchurched. I didn't know what I ought to sing. I just sang what they put in front of me. And uh, yet by singing them regularly, they begin to get into your heart, into your mind, into your blood. And um, I don't think I thought a whole lot about it, but I began to learn them that way. But you didn't know better is what you I didn't know better. You know, genuinely unchurched people don't know what they ought to find at church. We always seem to assume we know what they want in church. They don't want anything. So anyway, for me personally, that was my introduction to the psalms. And then over the years, as I've thought more and more about the psalms, particularly as I've studied history and saw, have seen how many of our very best Reformed theologians in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century promoted psalm singing, most of them exclusive psalm singing, it made me wonder what's there that's so attractive. And the more I studied it explicitly, gave myself to it, the more I recognized how incredibly valuable and helpful the psalms are.
1: They are made up of a 150 Psalms, the book of Psalms. Right. That's a lot of chapters. It is. You're quick, you are. It's not like Galatians or Ephesians where you could sit down and in a half an hour, maybe, you know, read through it. You're probably not going to get through all the Psalms in a half an hour. So, that makes them a little bit more difficult. Plus, they're set in what seems to us, I think, to be a very different world with a different vocabulary. And further, they're part of the Old Testament, which for many Christians— since the 19th century, is increasingly foreign territory.
2: So, how do we overcome all of that? Well, I think you state the problem very well. And, you know, you think if you sit down with the book of Galatians, even if you're a pretty ordinary layman, if you work out a little bit, you can do an outline of the book of Galatians. You can sort of see how Paul's line of thought is progressing in the book of Revelations. But when you open the book of Psalms with 150 poems, by and large, we tend to say, I don't see how this is organized. It's one poem after another. It's like a deck of cards. You could reshuffle them and it wouldn't make any difference. Uh, If you had 150 Psalms on separate sheets of paper and you threw them up in the air and put them together again, it wouldn't matter the order. And I think That's what most people think, and I think that's why people get frustrated. You read the Psalms devotional, you find a verse that's really striking, and then a week later you think, oh, I want to find that verse, and you can't find it because there's no outline to help you figure out that kind of sentiment. Where would it be? And you just get frustrated, I think. Or the same
1: thing might appear in five or six different places. Right. And which one was it where I saw that thing that really struck me? Okay, so presumably you're going to tell us that there is in fact a
2: structure and order to the Psalms if you know how to see it. I think there is something of a structure and order. I'm not here to say that I'm smart enough to tell you why every psalm is exactly where it is in the Psalter. But I don't think it's a random arrangement at all. I think there's an intentionality to the arrangement. And that's part of what I try to bring out in the book. Because, as you've indicated, there are so many strikes against the Psalter today. Uh, One of them is most Americans today are not trained to read poetry. Most maybe we read a bad poem in a Hallmark card. That's our acquaintance with poetry. And poetry requires a care, a thoughtfulness, a slowing down, a reflection. And uh, a lot of us are really not trained to do that. And then I think to the extent the church in the English-speaking world knew the Psalter, they knew it from the King James Version. And therefore, the loss of the King James Version for most of the church today has further increased that difficulty of access The sort of collective memory of the church that cherished phrases and psalms is sort of lost as well. So we're beginning almost from scratch to try to get into the Psalter. And it's Hebrew poetry, not English meter. And
1: so there are different values. For example, rhyming isn't necessarily as big a
2: thing in the Psalms as it might be in a collection of English poems. Exactly. And even the kind of meter that we're used to in English poems isn't necessarily present in Hebrew poems. So, yeah, it's a very different cultural linguistic world. And just translating words from Hebrew to English doesn't always make clear to us how this poetry is working. And the point of the thing, oftentimes,
1: as you were indicating just this morning in devotions in Psalm 105, isn't at the beginning or at
2: the end. It's actually in the middle. Right. Over and over again, the psalms. Certainly not in every psalm, but I would say probably in a large majority of the psalms, the real heart of the message, the real organizing thought of the psalm is in the center of the psalm, not
0: at the beginning and the end. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: We're talking to Bob Godfrey about his new book, Learning to Love the Psalms. Let's take, for example, Psalm 110. Now, there is arguably a parallel through the whole psalm from verse 1, and then in the second half of the psalm, there's a parallel for all the verses except for verse 4, where you have these two characters, Yahweh speaking to Adoni, and he makes a promise that is not repeated. So, is that a clue to see what's at the center and and what the psalm is all about?
2: Absolutely. Very often, a psalm is constructed. So, the first verse of the psalm actually echoes in some way with the last verse of the psalm. They're connected. It's not the only way in which the psalm proceeds, but it's one of the factors to look at. And then when you come to the center and see something uniquely stated at the center, that often is what then the whole psalm is revolving around. So when we read that God promises that uh, his son will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, we're really at the very heart of things and uh, seeing a perspective on the Messianic sonship that is almost not to be found anywhere else in the Old Testament. And we know that you're not speculating and just
1: sort of making things up because you're one of those scholars that sort of invents things and then writes a book about it. The New Testament actually tells us this, right? Right. And so that gives us some guidance
2: as to how to read the Psalms. Absolutely. Yeah, the New Testament definitely shows us how to to read the Psalms and shows us that in Jesus' day, the rabbis didn't know how to read the Psalter because he shuts their mouths by quoting Psalm 110 when uh, he says, The Lord has said unto my Lord, how can David, who wrote Psalm 110, refer to one of his sons as his Lord? That makes no sense in the rabbinic world. But Jesus used that verse correctly to show that he was not only David's son, but he was God's son. And that's why David has to call him Lord. So, one of the things that I learned, and I don't know how
1: long ago, but it was some years after I had begun reading the Psalms and even singing them sometimes in public worship, is that, in fact, there are five books in the Psalter.
2: What does that mean? Well, I think you're absolutely right that most people don't notice this at all, but any edition of the Psalter, any translation of the Hebrew Psalms that I have ever seen published, divides them into five books because that's the way all Hebrew versions of the Psalter come down to us. And so, already there's a structure in the book of Psalms. And uh, that structure is a division of the Psalter into five books of varying lengths, varying numbers of Psalms in each book. And what I try to do in my book is show that while there's not an absolute difference of one book to another, there are differing emphases in the differing books. And that I think that helps us gain a sense of how the Psalter is unfolding and helps us then read it and see something of the organization in the Psalter.
1: And we know that there is sort of a beginning and an end to each of these books, not only because of the way that's indicated, but there are internal indicators as well. For example, the listener might not know that there are
2: doxologies at the end of each of these books. Right. Yeah, absolutely. A marker that we're coming to an end. We're reaching a conclusion. And doxology is the proper conclusion because the Hebrew title for what we call the book of Psalms is actually the book of praises. So while not every psalm is a praise, the movement of the Psalter is in the direction of praise. And that's why each book ends with a doxology of praise to God. In the introduction, I mentioned that monks used to chant the psalms every day. That was
1: part of a monk's job, even at two in the morning, and so that they would basically memorize the Psalter. But in fact, they didn't invent singing or chanting the psalms. We know that the Christians in the early church did that, and we know that the New Testament believers sang those. Give us some examples in the New Testament where we see either Jesus and his disciples or where we have some indication in the New Testament that they were singing psalms.
2: Well, it's clear, for example, in Matthew's Gospel, where after the institution of the Lord's Supper, and as they're about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew records that at the end of the Passover meal, they sang a hymn and went out. And um, we can be absolutely certain that following the ritual of the Passover meal, what they actually sang together was Psalm 118. Well, no, wait a minute. You said hymn, and now you're saying psalm. So connect that
1: for us, because it sounds like you're doing a bait-and-switch. Somebody might say that. I wouldn't say that. Would you not say that?
2: (laughs) I can rely on you. Well, what we discover when we read the New Testament in Greek carefully is that the word psalmnos— and hymnos and ode as the primary references to song in the new testament are not technical terms we today often think of psalms as the english word for the old testament psalms and hymns as a word for humanly composed christian songs but that's not the way those words are used in the new testament those words are not technical terms so that uh, hymnos Him is, uh, I think, very clearly used there in Matthew to refer to Psalm 118. So, in 1
1: Corinthians, when Paul says, each one of you has a psalm, sometimes people want to translate that
2: as him, but in fact, we have reason to think that that actually could be a canonical psalm. Right, it could be a canonical psalm. Whatever it is, it's clearly an inspired song by the Holy Spirit because he's in the context of special gifts of the Holy Spirit, extraordinary gifts. But absolutely, that's right. And so, you know, number of scholars have pointed out that those three Greek terms, psalm, nos, hymnos, ode, that we translate psalms, hymns, and songs from Colossians and Ephesians, from Colossians uh, 3 and Ephesians 5 are all to be found in the Septuagint titles of the Old Testament Psalter. That is the Greek version of the Old Testament Psalter. So we can't just use words and say, well, the New Testament talks about hymns so we can sing hymns. We have to think a lot more carefully and profoundly about that.
3: For us as Christians, especially those who actually believe the Reformers got it right, it was nothing short of the recovery of the Gospel out of the darkness of the Middle Ages.
1: Mike Horton, or Westminster Seminary, California.
3: There's nothing more important than getting the Gospel right and getting the Gospel out. Judged by those terms, the Reformation was the greatest recovery of Christianity and missionary expansion in the history of the church since the Apostle Paul. The Reformation is important to Westminster Seminary California because we purport to be trying to make experts in the Bible. Scripture is our focus here. At the center of the biblical message from Genesis to Revelation is God's redemption of sinners in Christ, the gospel. The Reformation not only clarified that message, but also was a flowering, a biblical scholarship. Westminster takes the Reformation seriously only because it takes the scriptures seriously. And the Reformation was one of the greatest recoveries of scripture in the history of the church. We are reformed not because we want to belong to a tribe, but because we believe that this is actually the riches of scripture for the whole church. And it's not something that we possess, but something that possesses us.
0: Wsca.l.edu 888- Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. So how did we
1: lose the psalms if Jesus and the disciples were singing them and the early church was singing them and the medieval church was singing them and the reformers put together collections, worked really hard to get the psalms translated into French and to German and English so that we sang them through the 17th century and 18th century and then for most of the 19th century. Why is it today here in 2017 that very few people ever actually, even in Presbyterian and Reformed
2: congregations, still sing the psalms? Well, I think there are probably two primary factors about that. I don't think the churches did a good job maintaining modern-sounding translations of the Psalms to good, relevant tunes for the Psalter. So, the Psalter, for many Christians, began to sound very antiquated, old-fashioned, out-of-date, difficult. So, I think the church bears some of the responsibility for that. And then, on the other hand, I think uh, new movements, revivalism, Pentecostalism, produced their own hymnody that was more emotive. And that greater stress on emotion and my experience connected with people at a level that um, was much simpler to connect with than the Psalter was. You have to work some to connect with the Psalter. Although,
1: Psalm 23. Psalm 22 is a powerful song to sing. Psalm
2: 16. Psalm 100. I mean, that's another one that people are more likely to know. Yes, they are powerful, and all of them are not inherently difficult. Some of them are easier than others. But uh, they all have a depth and profundity to them that goes beyond what most contemporary hymnody would offer today. Some folks, even
1: you know, Presbyterian and Reformed ministers have argued, and one I remember seeing in print not long ago, uh, saying that Christians, because we're in the New Covenant, should not sing psalms because they're not appropriate for us anymore.
2: Can you respond to that briefly? Well, I think what's primarily in mind there is um, that there are imprecations in the psalms. That is, there is a calling down of curses in the psalms, and some have argued that that is not appropriate to the New Covenant community. I think that's just wrong-minded. Obviously, we're not to be individually and personally cursing our neighbors, but that's not what the Psalter does. The Psalter is calling down God's judgment on those who oppose God's work. And uh, not in each individual psalm, but in each, which you might call environment of each psalm, where there's an imprecation, there's always an invitation. The enemies are always invited to repentance, and imprecations only fall on the perseveringly impenitent. And so, you know, if you read Romans uh, 12, you have an imprecation. What is an imprecation? An imprecation is a calling down of a curse, um, that God would curse the enemy. And so this is a kind of
1: psalm. There are this class of psalms that are called imprecatory psalms. Right. And those are the ones that really trouble people because it doesn't feel nice or loving or warm or any of the things that we associate sometimes with being a Christian to say things especially if we're thinking about our unbelieving neighbors I don't want to see, you know, infant's head, my neighbor's, you know, newborn dashed against the rock. I can't say that. And
2: you're saying, we've missed the point a little bit. We've missed the point. And uh, we've particularly missed that every time we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we're implicitly praying an imprecation. When Jesus comes again, the day of salvation is over and judgment is visited on the wicked. And if we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we have to be ready to embrace the judgment he brings with him when he comes. And that's all the Psalms are doing, is asking asking for a day in which righteous judgment will be visited on the wicked who reject God and oppose his people.
1: So we have to remember the progress of redemption, that the Psalms do come with types and shadows. And so we have to remember those types and shadows and that they've been fulfilled in Christ. Right. So, are the Psalms so typological, so full of types, and shadowy that maybe it's better not to sing them or to add to them or you know, to make it more explicit that we believe in Jesus? Why should we be using types and shadows? Why are you restricting us, Bob? Well, I'm not personally restricting you. I'm trying to figure
2: out what God would have us do. Um, okay, that's an important point. Is it? Yes, Right? I think you're right. I think we as Reformed Christians, and I would hope all Christians, want to do in worship what God wants us to do. And so, the only way we know that is to study the Bible together and ask what's happening there. I think probably the biggest single objection to the Psalms is that it's not explicitly enough about Christ. And I think, you know, if we were to say that to Luther— Luther would just be mystified at that comment, and Luther says there's no book of the Bible more full of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ than the Psalms. What did he see that we're not seeing then? What I try to show in my book is that every psalm, in a certain sense, is a psalm in the voice of the king of Israel, and he is speaking for himself and for his people, slightly differently in different psalms. And that king is always Jesus. So, the spokesman in the Psalter is always Jesus. And the God we meet in the Psalter is always Jesus. So, everywhere is Jesus in the Psalter. And I think becoming sensitized to that will help us. I remember one uh, Free Church of Scotland minister saying, no book of the Bible shows us more of the emotional life of Jesus than the Psalter. And I think that's absolutely right.
1: Well, there's a reason why on the cross, our Lord turned to what we know as Psalm 20. Right. Right? That was who he was. He went to what was most familiar,
2: most intimate, and most true of him. Right. And he spoke both for himself and for us when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or, quoting another psalm, I thirst. All of this is embracing what God prepared so that we would understand him. We can't understand the cross without the Old Testament. We don't understand sacrifice and substitute without the Old Testament. We don't understand prophet, priest, and king without the Old Testament. And that's why we need to continually have our minds and hearts filled with that.
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So if we ask the question,
1: which, you know, is a question that's somewhat controversial, but if we ask the question, what would Jesus do?
2: At least to some degree, we can answer it by saying he would sing the Psalms. Well, we can ask the question, what did Jesus do? And the answer is he sang the Psalms and his mind and heart was full of the Psalms and he referred to them frequently. And then when you actually look at those passages in the New Testament that are labeled songs, there are a lot of things people call songs. But in terms of what the New Testament itself called songs, they all sound exactly like Old Testament Psalms. They're not talking about Jesus or the Trinity or what we think of as New Testament themes. They're exactly the same as Old Testament Psalms. So,
1: if a Christian really wants to get to know Jesus and to sort of understand him more and see things, you know, increasingly the way Jesus did, then reading the Psalms, singing the Psalms, meditating on the Psalms, however one is encountering them and using them, that is a way to sort of grow in one's knowledge of Jesus.
2: Exactly, exactly. And that's part of what I try to do in this book is to help people see Jesus more clearly in the Psalter. And the title of the book is Learning to Love the Psalms.
1: We're talking with Bob Godfrey about his brand new book, which is available in the Seminary Bookstore and in good bookstores everywhere, published by Reformation Trust. So this leads us to another closely related question, and that is, who is the I in the Psalms? Let's say a congregation takes you up on your offer, and they buy a batch of psalters, and they start singing the psalms in public worship. They're going to be standing there singing a psalm, and they're going to be singing about I am doing this, and I am not like that one over there. How should they think about the I when they're saying that? Who is that I, and how do they relate to that? Because
2: that could be a little uncomfortable. Seems like you're announcing your own righteousness. Right. And that I in the first place is always Jesus, I think. and. We can enter into it because we're in Jesus and we share in Jesus. Now, one point I try to talk about in the book a little bit is occasionally the eye says, I have sinned. And uh, can that be Jesus? And our systematic theology might incline us to say no, because Jesus never sinned. But what Jesus did do was take our sin upon himself. And so he not only takes our sin, but he takes our obligation to confess our sin on himself. And that's what we find in the Psalter as well. Usually,
1: the best place to start with the book is in the beginning. Now, there are some places where that's not the case. I always tell students if they want to understand the Quran, they need to go to the back. Because if you start at the beginning, it's very complicated and doesn't make a lot of sense. But in the back, there's a little bit of narration. In the beginning of the Psalter, however, it sort of distinguishes between two ways. It's a whole genre of literature from the ancient world that persisted into the early Christian period. And it says in the English Standard Version, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So give us a sense of how you go at this so that when the listener takes you up on your offer, reads your book, learns to love the Psalms, and starts reading them, what is he or she going to find here? How does he or she think about this?
2: Well, this is an interesting point to start because you have some modern Christians who want to translate verse 1 of Psalm 1, "Blessed is the person," to be less sexist, to be more politically correct, to be more politically correct. But in the Hebrew, it is clearly not blessed is the person. It is blessed is the male, blessed is the man. It's intentionally male there whereas there wasn't a Hebrew word that would have been more gender inclusive. So, I think we're right to say, who is the blessed man? The blessed man is Jesus. Jesus is the only man who ever perfectly did not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Having said that, that doesn't mean that we don't enter into this sum. We don't just say, oh, Jesus is the blessed man. It has nothing to do with me directly. No, because I'm in Jesus. I want to walk in his way. So, I learn here that not only is Jesus the blessed man who perfectly does this, but I, if I would be a Blessed man also want to walk in the way that Jesus walked by the power of His Spirit in the light of His forgiving grace. So it's both for him and for me, and that's part of the joy of it. It brings all of these things together. Two things as we bring this to a close, we're talking to Bob Godfrey about his new book, Learning to Love the
1: Psalms. First, how can we recover then the Psalms for the life and worship of the church? Let's say an elder is listening or a pastor is listening, and uh, they say, "You know, Godfrey has a point. What do we do now?"
2: Well, I think we always have to go about change in the life of the church in a pastoral, careful, thoughtful way. We have to find psalms that are singable, texts that are understandable. Maybe we have to introduce to the service a one or two, three-minute introduction to a given psalm to explain people how they ought to be singing it, understanding it. Maybe it would be good to have. I remember when my kids first went to the Christian school, we had a Psalm of the Month, and the kids in school would sing the same Psalm over and over again for a month so that they really learned it. Maybe we need to do that in church, have a Psalm of the Month in the church, but introduce people in a way that will help them learn to love the Psalms, not to sort of just have an avalanche of Psalms that would probably lead them to hate the Psalms. So we have to proceed pastorally to really introduce people to the joy of knowing the Psalter. How
1: has, finally, then, your meditation on the Psalms, lo these many years, and you're singing of them. How has it benefited you personally and your family? Because I know this is something that
2: you've been doing with your family for a long time. I did try for a while to lead my children in singing the Psalms, but when I would try to lift the Psalm, as the old expression was, uh, they would just get hysterical because <laughs> I was never anywhere close to the tune. But I really think getting into the Psalter, changes the way you look at the world. And one of the things that is really striking about the Psalter, almost every psalm, there may be one or two exceptions, but almost every psalm is explicit about the contrast between the righteous and the wicked between the godly and the disobedient. And it's a constant reminder that we are called to be God's children in who we are and how we live and that we live in contrast to the world. And that's a worldview that really needs to get into our marrow to help us living in this
0: world. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.